Hey everybody, we just want to put a couple of disclaimers on the front end of this episode. The first is that we are talking about mass shootings, and so if that's something that is going to be triggering to you, please, by all means, feel free to skip this episode. The second is that since the time of this recording, yet another mass shooting has taken place, this time in Orange County, California, and it claimed the lives of four people. Because that happened after we recorded this podcast, it is conspicuously absent from our conversation, but we just wanted to say that our hearts go out to those families, and they are an important part of this conversation as well. With that, let's start the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what you get is podcast. Well, we should probably have a trigger warning on the beginning of this episode right off the bat. Yeah, jump right into it. Yeah, so um, if you're listening, we are going to be discussing some of the recent events in the news regarding what had happened in Atlanta and in Boulder, Colorado. And so if you are someone who has experienced events like these and you think it might be triggering, you may want to skip this one, and we will see you next week. We just wanted to put that out there before jumping right into the conversation about um, yeah, what has happened in the last couple of weeks um, with two mass shootings that happened you know, in, in a very short period of time. Yeah, and at the time of this recording, it's about a week and a half prior to when we're going to be releasing this podcast. So this podcast might not have the most recent information by the time you hear it. But at this point, we are about 10 days since the mass shooting in Atlanta that claimed the lives of eight people. And we're five days out since the shooting in Boulder that claimed the lives of 10 people. So again, we're going based on the information that we have as we're recording it. And hopefully it's still accurate and current by the time this podcast is released. Yeah, and at this moment, we have a lot more information about the Atlanta shooting, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, we have a lot more information about the shooter and his motives and all those kinds of things, more so than in the case in Boulder. About all I kn- could find about the, the case in Boulder was that it was a 21-year-old man. He was the son of a restaurant owner who emigrated from Syria to the U.S. in 2002 and was, quote, deeply troubled. That's about all I could find on that. Uh, why he did this, what his motives were, what led up to it, all those kinds of events are as yet unclear. Uh, at least I wasn't able to find anything uh, on what anyone was reporting on the story at this moment. But in Atlanta, we actually have just this tangled cobweb of intersecting causes and motives and contributing factors And so we want to take some time today and just kind of like decompress and kind of pull some of these threads out and try to make sense of some of these things kind of in in a larger conceptual way of what what were the contributing factors to this. Um, And there are a a number of things that uh, we could talk about and just the tangled web theologically and practically with regard to purity culture, uh, racism and uh, even the racialization of uh, sexual fantasies. Yeah, so it's going to be a pretty deep podcast in regards to multiple topics because we've seen just multiple themes come out of this tragic shooting. And so 
we're just going to jump in and kind of talk about some of the story of what we've been able to gather uh, based on the information that we have. And so if you're not aware of the details, um, here's kind of a bit of context that will set up the conversation that we're going to have on the podcast. Yeah. So on March 16th, uh, 2021, there was this uh, another 21-year-old young man uh, the same age as the the boulder shooting. His name was uh, Robert Long. His name is Robert Long. Uh, and he took a handgun and he went on a killing spree across three different Asian-owned uh, spas. Um, I've actually heard that uh, massage parlor is not an appropriate term, uh, that that's actually a racialized term that we... Oh, wow. Yeah, so a, a, hmm. a spa where they um, offer services, including massages. And he entered the first spa... And it's weird because he remained in there for a period of about an hour and a half, so about 90 minutes. Security footage caught him going into there. Uh, We don't know exactly what happened for that hour or so, but we know how it ended in that he fatally shot uh, two people and injured three more before fleeing the scene. And then he traveled uh, 30 miles to another spa where he fatally wounded three more people. And then... I guess there was another spa across the, the street or just kind of across the way. And he ran across this, the street and uh, he had another spa and he killed one more person. And at the second spa, the, it, even one of the, the people working at the spa who thankfully escaped with their life, uh, they had reported hearing him say, uh, I'm going to kill all the Asians. And so that's kind of... The story, he was then apprehended and arrested shortly thereafter. And so on the face of it, it seems like an anti-Asian act of terror, pure and simple. And it is an anti-Asian racist crime and murders, but it was also even more insidious than that. As details have emerged even further, the, the web has gotten even more tangled. Yeah, and a lot of the details that we received actually came from the police who interrogated Long and had conversations with him. So on the surface of it, from just the data points of where he chose to go to target people, the group of people that he targeted, it would seem as if, like you said, pure and simple, it's an anti-Asian attack, which that should not be removed from the conversation because of the information we end up hearing from the interrogation, but it's a piece of it. Yeah. And there's other things that were, were added onto it that we kind of want to unpack, but upon interrogating along the police, they discovered that he was actually from a very conservative Baptist home, that his dad was a influential lay leader in a church, I think in the youth group, uh, almost, you know, on the level of being a youth pastor, he was raised in, you know, this very conservative Baptist church and he, had been struggling with uh, what he had deemed a sex addiction. And apparently these spas, at least in his mind, were places where he could solicit prostitution. And uh, there's conflicting reports on whether or not these spas were actually involved in illicit behaviors like that. And so I don't want to confirm that or assume that to be true and besmirch their name and, and add further insult to the injury that they've already suffered. Mm. So I'll say in his mind, in his understanding, it it was a place where he could solicit prostitution from these Asian-owned spas. 
And so he thought the best way to get the temptation away from him and, you know, potentially from other people would be to eliminate the people running these spas through murderous acts. And so in the wake of these murders, we're left grappling with the fact that he made a a theological determination Mm. that murder was the best course of action in this situation to keep him from sinning sexually. And since this has happened, the church that he was a member of, they they actually ended up needing to take down like their website and their information on where they meet. Because I think they were genuinely concerned for their safety and uh, repercussions that may have come as a result of this guy being one of their members and they replaced on their website, basically everything they took everything down and they replaced it with the statement essentially saying like, we're we're rescinding his membership, basically disowning him, condemning him and saying like, we don't believe any of the, the things that he, that would lead him to this kind of a killing spree. Mm. Yeah. And so there's a lot of important details involved in this mass shooting. And depending on, who you're listening to, they might just be honing in on one side of this incident. And we want to take a step back and actually look at all of the pieces that are making up this situation because there's a lot of different factors that were at play. And to isolate it and say it was only one of these issues is to not be looking at the situation as a whole. And so a lot of the things that are at play in this particular conversation would be the issue of gun control, which is always the forefront of any conversation when it comes to a mass shooting. Um, Because obviously, how did this person get a gun? And just all the questions that come alongside that. Um, Very clearly, in this incident, we have issues of anti-Asian rhetoric that has grown in popularity over the last few years. And that plays into this incident as well. There's the issue of purity culture within the church. There's a discussion of mental health. Was he even in his right mind when all of this was happening? Some would say absolutely not, because how could he say the solution to sin is to kill people? And some say, well, no, he he was in his right mind and he actively chose to carry this out. Uh, And there's also just the over-sexualization of Asian women, which the further you dig into this, the more you kind of see this truth come out. And as we're kind of going to explain a little bit further, this is something that is far larger that I was never fully aware of until we began to look into it. And then I said, oh yeah, I can certainly see how Asian women have been overly sexualized. Yeah. So that is a very tangled web. So what we wanted to do is kind of parse out some of the different Uh, aspects of this conversation so that we could have some kind of coherent discussion about it um, and hit on all of these things. And obviously a lot of them overlap, but we just kind of want to take, you know, different topic points and see how they're contributing to this tragedy that has happened in this horrific event. And probably the one that I have the least to say about is uh, gun control. Um, I'm a little bit ambivalent towards that conversation what we know about both stories both in atlanta and at boulder that the guns that they possessed were not assault rifles um they were legally obtained in the case of the one in boulder i believe he even passed a background check and the waiting period and all that kind of stuff um and so it, it seems like mass shootings are happening where 
there's a lot of gun control and there are mass shootings happening where there isn't quite as much gun control. And so I'm kind of ambivalent towards that conversation. I know a lot of people aren't. And that's a, you know, it's a heavily politicized issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, politicians always talk about common sense gun laws, but we, we don't really have a common sense on what those gun laws should be. And so um, I just probably don't have anything intelligent to say with regard to that conversation. Yeah, I I think we're both on the same page in that area. Uh, we know that it is a one of those topics that's a hot topic. And I don't think that we have anything in terms of approaching this from a theological standpoint and trying to speak into this in a biblical way. I don't think we quite have... Um, enough <laughs> not that we're not interested in the conversation but i just don't think we have enough right i don't have enough of a theological leg to stand on to make an argument right one to, way or the other yeah exactly so we'll kind of just mention we'll, it we'll table that one yeah yeah we'll yeah we'll table it we'll mention it because it's it's certainly a part of the conversation but it's not one of the many pieces that we want to really dive deep into yeah so um probably a good place to start then would be with the purity culture aspect which we have some thoughts about that yeah and when it comes to um, how purity culture has been a part of just conservative evangelical circles and this is something that we've touched on in previous podcasts in a number of different ways and a number of different conversations yeah but it's um, super relevant to this conversation and I think from the outset, it, it, this is an obvious point, right? But it just so we're all on the same page. There are a lot of people who grew up in uh, toxic evangelical purity cultures that have never killed anybody. Right. And it didn't cause them to go on a murderous killing spree. Mm -hmm. So that's an obvious but necessary thing to, to say, like, we're, we're not blaming the purity culture for, right. uh, for the direct, you know, result of murderous acts by a deeply disturbed individual. Um, but we do want to discuss how that kind of purity culture can become toxic and then can become a conducive environment where someone like Robert Long can come to a theological determination that the best way to deal with that is through murder. Because he did that in a in a theological framework. Hmm. Uh, in many ways, his decision to do this was a theological decision. Yeah. Which is deeply disturbing. And the way that it was a theological decision was in the grid of uh, the purity dynamic that he was raised up in. Right, because he was feeling this pressure to remain pure in his sexuality and to be faithful to what God was calling him to do. And he wasn't doing that. So I think we can see a large amount of the pressure from the purity culture that had then turned into this guilt and shame in his life. And if you've ever walked around with guilt and shame, it, it's heavy. And I imagine for him, he was just trying to rid himself of that guilt and shame. And though I, I don't understand how the conclusion became killing people, right? I can see his want to rid himself of guilt and shame. Yeah, the guilt and shame turns into hate and anger, mm -hmm. which turns into physical violence. I think that's... That was the course that he took, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to dealing with guilt and shame in a different way, he he went that route. Yeah, and as we're saying this, we, we don't want to sound overly sympathetic to a murderer here. No. But we're just, we're just unpacking what 
yeah. we see before us. And this is an issue that we, we see in the church a lot. And there's actually this article I saw on a religion news service by Samuel Perry. And he's a researcher and a statistician, and he does a lot of uh, study in the area of evangelical views on sex and marriage and all those kinds of things. And he had some some interesting statistics and some interesting things to say in an article called How Pleading Sexual Addiction Protects Evangelical Men. And really, that was the conversation that has been brought up in this, this case in Atlanta is that he, his, he's pinning his murderous acts on his sexual addiction, that he's blaming his sexual addiction for being the motive for which he would, he would kill somebody. And this idea of sexual addiction is um, very much ensconced in evangelical culture, and he has mm-hmm. some numbers that bear that out. For example, evangelicals are about 16 percent less likely to view porn on a weekly basis yet they are 10 percent more likely to consider themselves addicted to porn almost one in three evangelical men about 29 percent, i think it was so a little bit less than one in three believe themselves to be addicted to porn so they view porn less like their viewership of of porn is less than non-evangelicals and yet more of them than the average population would say that they are addicted to porn and this is the language that we use around sexual purity is often language of addiction. addiction rather than acknowledging that you are human and you have sexual desires and instead of learning how to be disciplined in those areas we are then saying well i am undisciplined and the reason for that is because i'm addicted right i missed out of control I, yeah, I'm out of control, as opposed to realizing there is a level that is before addiction. Yeah, and it, it's it's partly, I think, to separate the, the sin from yourself. If it's this kind of like outside thing that's attacking you and making mm-hmm. you do this and you can call it addiction, then you don't have to feel as bad about it, I guess. Like, um, because sexual sin is often seen as like the worst thing you could possibly do in your life. In the case of Robert Long, he believed it worse than even killing somebody Hmm. was to fall into sexual sin. And that's kind of on par with the evangelical view on how you should view sex. And so if that's our view on sexual sin, and yet sexual sin is pretty common because uh, humans are sexual beings, then we have to find a way to externalize it. And the way you do that is by calling it an addiction. And this language is so prevalent in evangelical circles that one in three men says that they're addicted to, to porn. So all of the church yeah. is addicted. At least one. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's addicted to porn. When And what's crazy is that the APA, the American Psychological Association, they have this tool called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. And in the DSM, uh, addiction to porn isn't even listed as a recognized mental disorder like it's not recognized as an actual addiction in the sense that it's its own thing i mean Mm -hmm. there are certainly um clinical addictions you can have that would be more filed under obsessive compulsive or you know compulsive behavior whether it was like gambling that's interfering with your life or if like you're viewing porn so much that like it's making you lose your job. It's all you're doing all day long and it's really interfering with your life. That kind of compulsive behavior, mm-hmm. they would file it more under that. But like porn addiction as its own mental disorder 
is not recognized by the American Psychological Association even as a disorder. And so in a lot of ways, we're using this unscientific uh, use of language to clinicalize hmm. our sin and turn it into some kind of psychological disorder when right. it's not even recognizes that. And a lot of times, even what an evangelical man might consider his addiction to porn, a medical professional would say that's actually within the realm of normal behavior, like within the range of what most humans do. Right. And so we're not saying... Not to moralize it, but it is on the bell curve of what is Mm -hmm. normal sexual behavior and normal as defined by this is how humanity does it then they would be on that bell curve. Mm-hmm. And there's not a clinical reason to say that they're addicted to porn. Right. So I, as evangelicals, we have begun to frame sexual sin in this terms of like clinical psychopathy, right? Right. And people in the medical field wouldn't say that is a thing. No. Right. It's important to say we're not saying porn is fine. Right. But when it comes to understanding what it is to have an addiction and a disorder, what most Christians are saying they struggle with as an addiction and labeling it as an addiction is not actually held up in this form of science and what people who study addictions would say. Yeah, and I think... What where that becomes relevant is that we say this is the worst possible thing you could do next to murdering somebody, and yet everybody does it. We're all addicted to it. You have this chain around you that you'll never be able to escape it because you're addicted to it, and yet it's the worst thing that you could possibly do, and yet we're all living in it, which gives you this sense of like helplessness and hopelessness and just – even if you don't like this guy go crazy and – and kill people over it. It is still just this culture of shame and guilt and heaviness because we have elevated sexual sin to being tantamount to apostasy and then saying that everyone's addicted to it. Uh, it then creates this really toxic culture, a uh, repressive culture, a culture where we're not even allowed to, to talk about it. And it's just a very, a lonely environment that we create around sexual sin and around the journey of seeking to be sexually faithful. We have so like plucked it from its place that it is doing a lot of damage. And this is an extreme case where we see someone haul off and do something Hmm. just, just the the loss of life is, is tragic and evil and horrifying. Right. Uh, But people are also struggling within this toxic framework on a day-to-day basis. And again, this isn't to say that we shouldn't emphasize sexual purity, but it is to say, why is that the worst thing you could do when the church has been so slow to move on things like racial justice, on things like poverty, because those are seen as political issues? When it comes to the Bible, those are the things that the prophets are, are judging the people most often for. Like when the the prophets came to town in Israel, most of the time they weren't condemning them for sleeping around. Most of the time they were condemning them for not paying attention to justice, mm-hmm. for not paying attention to the poor, for oppressing the people among them and allowing oppression to continue. And yes, both justice and sexual purity 
are a part of the framework of what God wants us to do. But we have to hold everything in, in balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the the level of hurt that goes on with regard to sexual purity and purity culture, it shows that we are out of balance. That and when we place such a heavy emphasis on this sin, it ends up creating, like you said, this sort of toxic environment. But it lends itself to far more guilt and shame revolving around this topic than probably just about any other sin that could come to light within your church. So if someone were to stand at the pulpit and be transparent and be honest about a sin in their life that they have struggled with, I guarantee you if they reveal any type of a sexual sin, they will be met with judgment and there will be swift action taken, which is not to say there shouldn't be some type of uh, discipline, but if they were to stand at the pulpit and admit a different type of sin, we might just push it aside and say, well, you are human, like you've repented of it, that's great. But if someone were to come and say, you know, 10 years ago, I really struggled with pornography or I had an affair or I had sex before marriage, we are far less likely to just be thankful that they were transparent with us and ensure that they repented and restore them back into their role than if they would share any other type of sin. There's something about sexual sin that we like to judge far more harshly than just about any other category of sin. And it is interesting too, because it creates a sense of self-righteousness. Like there are the moral haves and have nots in this area. And so long as you can keep it in your pants or give off the appearance that you're keeping it in your pants, then like you can be racist. You can Mm. be misogynistic. You can be a jerk. You can be a gossip. You can be greedy you can be whatever you want so long as you never cheated on your wife or looked at porn, nobody's going to hassle you. Yeah. But the second you waver in that regard, everyone's going to hassle you mm-hmm. and the hammer of judgment is coming swiftly for you. Right. And so I think that's where the purity culture has been toxic. Because so we, we talk about it like so much, like we are very much obsessed with like don't show any of your shoulder like we have books you know every young man's battle and i'm not saying we shouldn't have the resources or we shouldn't care about those things but it's such a focal point well especially in youth group in youth group it's it's all that's talked about there's entire conventions and conferences that are built around sexual purity and i understand you're a teenager you got raging hormones and it's it's a pretty hot topic on your mind anyways (laughs) But (laughs) it's true. I'm just saying the truth. But to have everything within your youth program center around this topic, and it's not helpful in in the ways that it talks about it. It's it just says, do not do it. If you do it, you are a filthy, dirty, wretched sinner. And that's that's all we want to say about it. Don't do it. Or else you are dirty and you're a sinner. So don't do it. Right, but you can do... Don't do it. You can do basically anything else and we won't we won't really have to. Yeah, like you. you can drink. Sure, why not? What the heck? 
you know, you can lie to your parents. Like there's so many other things that students are wrestling with in their life. That will be like, you know, God's grace is big enough for this. Yeah. But we, not if you sleep with somebody. Right. Yeah. Or the way that a girl dresses, like it all revolves around this sort of sexualization within within the church that we want to stay so far away from it and we want to make it this really dirty and nasty topic that if you even think about it, you are dirty and nasty. And that's so far away from the grace and the forgiveness that God extends. And we understand he extends it because like you said, we're we're willing to say God's grace covers that sin. But when it comes to sexual sin, we're not super sure. Yeah, best not mess up on that one. And our emphasis on that has really made us blind to other issues. And I think that brings us to the race issue. Because as uh, Long was arrested, even the policeman came out and said, well, the guy said he's not a racist. This wasn't racially motivated. And, you know, every person of color collectively rolled their eyes at that moment Mm -hmm. in time. Um, because we said, well, it's about sex. It's not about race. Well, it actually was about race. And this is something that the church has really uh, been blind to in a lot of times. But in the past year, we've been painfully reminded on a number of different occasions that in you know white evangelicalism, that this is something that is a, a glaring blind spot within our movement at large. And really, as it relates to this case and the anti-Asian racism in the past year, there's been a lot of rhetoric mm-hmm. that is anti-Asian when it comes to the COVID-19. Calling it the China virus, calling it Kung Flu, people laughing and jeering about that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the church, unfortunately, has not stood against that kind of language. Right. And people in the Asian American community said, hey, not only is this hurtful, this is dangerous. Because what it does is if you can dehumanize a whole group of people by caricaturizing them, by stereotyping them, by lumping them into a category like this, you you strip away their humanity and they become this kind of faceless enemy. Once you dehumanize them with your language, then there's there's a, a, a welling up of anger and hatred. And if there's enough anger and hatred because you've already dehumanized them, then that will erupt into physical violence that is just the path that these things take and that is the path that this has taken and you can see a direct line from that to this yeah and there's been an increase statistics have shown there's been a uptick in racism against asians during the pandemic and that's because of the kind of rhetoric that we've seen used over and over and over again. And I've even talked to people who have become so misinformed about the way a virus works and the fact that it originated in China. And now all of a sudden we are fearful of anyone who's Asian that they're walking around carrying the virus. And that's that's not how it works. Right. Yeah. And- someone was literally... Afraid to be around Asian people because they, they thought they were the carriers of the virus. Right. Yeah, it's and insane. It It's so mind-boggling that we've arrived at this point to where people are fearful of another people group as if every single Asian in the world is carrying the virus. There's just... It's just such a breakdown of our our 
logical systems as we choose to think through and just evaluate what's happening around us, that because of the rhetoric that has been used, and we we try and stay away from calling specific people out, but it, I think it's just where we're at. Trump allowed the orange these, elephant in the room as we've been skating around. Uh, yeah. So Trump allowed these kinds of conversations and he, as the president of the United States, was calling it this and using this kind of rhetoric that completely alienated and dehumanized an entire group of people. And out of that came fear, fear for people who are Asian who are living in America, because now anyone who sees them or anyone who's buying into this narrative that Trump has plastered all over our nation, they are now accusing every Asian of carrying the COVID-19 virus. And and they're calling them by names that, again, dehumanize them. And it's become such an issue within our culture that we are now seeing it no longer be an issue of just being politically incorrect. Right. It is harming lives. Mm-hmm. And we're not, yeah, hear, it's not that we're being too sensitive. We're not being sensitive enough because people are literally dying. They're exactly. And they're literally dying. And it should never have gotten to this point because we have been warned for the last year and a half now that this is, this is the route it was going to go down. And this is where we're at. People are dying. People are being assaulted merely because they're Asian. Right. And that's that's a problem. Racism is still happening in our country. And it is happening in new ways. And I think the rhetoric we've continued to use around this virus has pushed us further down this road of accepting racism in its most blatant forms. Yeah. And part of that acceptance of that amongst evangelicals and particularly white evangelicalism is that we've just kind of whole hog drunk the Trump Kool-Aid and not kind of eaten the meat and spit out the bones of his presidency. Like, yeah, conservative judges. Yes. Pro-life judges. But also you can celebrate those things. But also if you're being consistent with your biblical worldview, you have to have to have to reject and call out and Mm. rebuke the kind of rhetoric that has spawned from the very same presidency. And uh, I've seen it even in the town that I grew up, Diamond Bar, California. Shout out to <laughs> Diamond Bar Shout for being uh, not a great place f- with regard to this conversation mm. of, you know, there was an anti-racism uh, demonstration on one of the main street corners of Diamond Bar. I knew a lot of people that were actually there. I thought I thought it was great. Uh, Diamond Bar used to be a very white neighborhood a number of decades ago, but had the the composition of the the neighborhood has changed, and now it's mostly uh, Asian, particularly Chinese and Korean, are kind of the main two two groups that are in Diamond Bar. And so, this is something that was very personal to uh, you know over half of the people living in Diamond Bar. And so there was this big demonstration, and this was on the news that somebody came up to the intersection uh, almost hit some people with his car basically um they were crossing the street and he basically ran them off the road uh and then he went down the road a little way and he got out of his car and he said f china f you and then he he zoomed away and so to say that this is not an issue that you're being too sensitive because oh you you snowflake you know like me when i call it kung flu like this is about something so much greater than being 
politically correct. It's about anti-Asian racism that has been pro. I've seen it my whole life in the city mm. I grew up in. Yeah. And is it is really, I think for the first time in my lifetime, getting uh, national attention hmm. in ways that I've never seen before. Um, but it, it, it's not a new problem. It's, it's a problem that's been around for a really long time. And in particular, uh, a particular brand of misogyny within that against Asian women. And this is a piece of our history as a nation. Asian women have been long targeted and because they were females within that race. Right. So with these murders, it was they were seen as a sexual temptation because there were these Asian women working in these spas. And so they must necessarily be prostitutes because they're Asian women working in spas where they offer massages. That was his line of thinking. Right. And that's because there is this long history within our country that has unfortunately tied Asian women working within a spa must be prostitutes. And there's a deep history. You might be thinking, that's crazy. That can't be real. But researching this topic a little bit further, we actually found that this goes back as far as 1875 in our country um, based on the Page Act, which barred Chinese women from entering the country because they were seen as prostitutes. And that was a precursor to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So we have been removed from 1875, but there are still rippling effects of the way that generation after generation after generation views Asian women and associates them with prostitution even so many years later. Yeah, and that idea was even bolstered during World War II and in the Korean War when you had a bunch of American GIs over in, uh, in different parts of Asia across those two wars. And while they were there, were often engaged in soliciting prostitution um, from the women that were native to those countries that they were in. And so you have this pre-existing notion from 1875 that Asian women are prostitutes that is bolstered by the experience of uh, American GIs who were soliciting that from the women who are in those countries and has kind of continued on uh, even today as there's this stigma with regard to Asian-owned spas that you know, hey, there's probably, you know, something going on there. Right. Because if it were a spa owned by a white person, we wouldn't automatically assume there's something else going on. They're offering additional services that they're not supposed to be offering. But as soon as we think it's an Asian owned spa, we automatically assume there are additional services that are being offered. Right. And that that part makes it even more sickening. When you think about the shooting in Atlanta, because if this guy, and I'm not saying he was, so for the sake of hypothetical conversation, let's say the, the, the spas that he did hit were engaging in prostitution. Then what he was doing was objectifying them to such a point that he couldn't even see their victimization. Hmm. That if you are in, in a, a prostitution ring like that, it's because you're being trafficked. It's human trafficking. So right. if that were true, I'm not saying it is, all that he served to do 
would be to basically execute the victims of human trafficking who are essentially enslaved to somebody else who is profiting off of their objectification. Mm. And so it's just, it's just so dark and sick and twisted how that could be the, the his quote-unquote solution to his temptation would be to murder these women who potentially were trafficking victims. Right. So, so they were that's already, how it's about race. Yeah. And about yeah. sex. Yeah. You can't you can't take those two things apart from each other. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a deep dark web and it, it, it exposes a lot of assumptions that frankly the Asian American community have long known are there. Mm. But I think many of us need to come awake to. Right. And I have friends who are Asian and who have told me the ways they have been dehumanized and racial slurs have been made about them and comments and just things that you don't want to believe are still happening today in our country, but they are. And if you would step outside of your circle and just talk to someone who has had racial slurs, uh, even so far as abuse and been physically, mentally abused because of their race, you can see these things are still happening when you you take the time to talk to somebody who's experienced it. And that even goes back to the same conversation that we had on multiple podcasts ago um, when we were talking about the Black Lives Movement, um, not the organization, the movement, and how if we would just talk to somebody who has had these situations happen in their life, you very quickly realize it is happening. There's not massive groups of people that are just lying. They're not making it up. Why why would they make up the ways in which they have been abused by people of a different race, of the dominating race, just for the sake of attention? Like that doesn't that doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And there are way too many stories to say it's all just fabrications. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not really sure where to go from here on this conversation, but really, like, I think at the end, like, we need to stop victim blaming. We need to stop dehumanizing people of color in this particular conversation, people in the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. And we need to get serious about what justice looks like. At the end of the day, even if we were successful at keeping it in our pants our Mm. whole lives, but if we neglected justice, Mm. then God has stern words for us. And so I think I'll leave us with uh, these verses out of Amos chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court. And detest the one who tells them the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes 
and deprive the poor of justice in their courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that ye may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in your courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, herandhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compare To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compare To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.